have you tended a garden lately? Or ever? Maybe seen this done? You don't have to have done it to know what it is like, I don't think. You walk among your fruits and your vegetables. You walk among your flowers and roses and you look very closely to see what has died, what branch is broken and needs to be cut, what needs to be pruned, what needs to be dug out and ridded of. I think what we're seeing in our passage today is that Jesus is tending worship in the garden of the church. Jesus is tending like a gardener the worship in the garden of the church. Now, I, if you're tracking, you heard the passage we just read as our sermon text and thought, there ain't no gardens in there. <laughs> and you might be thinking even now, where's the door? This is one of those weird churches. This is one of those churches that read those weird passages and say strange things. And my hope today is that the Lord will help you, help me, help us hear God's word and say, yeah, that's, that's what it seems to be saying. The Lord Jesus Christ is a priest gardener tending the worship in the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are coming to this, your word, and we trust that this is your word revealed by your spirit and that we might hear from you. We don't need more of men's news, man's counsel. We need your word. And all the ways that we need to go forward this week in encouragement and endurance, would you help us by this word? And all the ways that we should prune and cut and repent, would you help us to do that? by your word. We love you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in the book of Revelation, and we have uh, said already a few times in the last couple of weeks that the, the language of the book of Revelation is symbolism. Uh, if you're here and you are listening, odds are high that you speak some form of English. Mine is East Texan. English, personally. It's my dialect. But the language of the book of Revelation is symbolism. It gives us pictures that mean things. And in this passage, we have some, what might seem to us, strange and unrelatable pictures and images. And John is borrowing language from the Old Testament in order to describe what John sees when he sees Jesus Christ. And I want you to know that that symbolism today isn't only a quick, easy fulfillment kind of use of the Old Testament. So some places in the Bible you'll see the New Testament say, this happened in order to fulfill this thing that the Old Testament said. We've seen that several times in the last few weeks already. Instead, I think that these words that John uses in this vision, telling us what he sees, work kind of like the way that English and Spanish work together. They both have a Latin base. If you know English good, like me, you can pick up some Spanish words. So, like, I don't know what the word for glory is in Spanish. 
I do because I looked it up. But if I hear the word Gloria, Gloria in Spanish, I don't have to know Spanish to know, well, that sounds like glory to me. And what I think John is doing is he's not only referencing some Old Testament passages to say this is being fulfilled now like this, but he's throwing those out there to bring in the whole language of the Old Testament so that we go, yeah, that sounds like that. When he talks like that, that makes me think of that. Because the Old Testament and the New Testament have the same Latin base. They both have the same redemptive plan of God as their undergirding meaning and purpose. Look at what Marilyn read for us. Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. This is John's vision. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. We're going to spend time this morning working through these next three verses, through verse 20, trying to make sense of them. And we're going to begin with this, the Son of Man in the midst of seven golden lampstands. When you think lampstands, what do you think? It might be that you have no idea what in the world lampstands has to do with anything. But do you have furniture in your own home that is like a, fairly, a family heirloom to you? Maybe you have a lamp that's been handed down to you in your home from your great-grandmother, and you have a story about where your great-grandmother got that lamp. And then you have a story about how that lamp got to your grandmother who saved it from the fire as a family heirloom and kept it herself and then passed it on to your mom who had to have part of it replaced because you knocked it off of the shelf, and now she's given it to you. And it's not just a lamp that makes light, it's a lamp that has a story, it's a lamp that has memories, it's a lamp that has meaning. I think this is what John is doing with the lampstands in Revelation chapter 1. What are these lampstands about? It's like going in someone's house saying, tell me about that lamp. Well, it's a long story. It's a long story. These lampstands, what do they mean? It's a long story which can't simply be summarized under looking up lampstands in your Bible dictionary, although that's a great place to start. What I want to do for a moment is just see how far back and what I think will be how high the meaning of the lampstands goes, looking at three different passages. There are a lot more places to talk about these lampstands in the Bible than we will give time to this morning, but we're trying to get enough to draw up a, a picture. What, what does that mean? What do those lampstands mean when you, when you hear that phrase or even that term in this context in Revelation 1? Go in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25. In this text, Moses just left Egypt with all the people of Israel. And God has saved Israel from 400 years of oppression, rescuing them from Pharaoh. And then God met Moses after that with the people safe out. God met Moses on Mount Sinai and he gave him instructions on how to live, the Ten Commandments. And instructions on how to build the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a traveling temple before the permanent temple was built by Solomon so many years later. Exodus 25 tells us that Moses was instructed to build what he was shown when he was up on Mount Sinai. That was first the Ark of the Covenant, the table for bread, and then the golden lampstand that we're about to read about. The golden lampstand in Exodus chapter 25 is supposed to be one single piece of gold. Moses was instructed that the, there would be one middle lamp with three branches on the right and three branches on the left, all with lamps on top of them. So seven lamps total, seven spots for what would look like us, like a candle fixture maybe. This would be what you might know as the Jewish menorah. The seven spindled candle holder or oil holder at the center of the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah. 
This moment is a major stamp in the history of lampstands. When an Israelite hears lampstands, they think of this lampstand in the tabernacle and in the temple of the presence of God himself. Two things about this lampstand that are particular for us to take. Exodus 25, verse 37, this section being the place where God gives the instruction about building the lampstands. The lamps are for light. In fact, it says specifically, these lamps shall give light in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And in Exodus chapter 27, a couple chapters later in another passage, Leviticus 24, we see that the job of the priests in the temple, one of their jobs, is to make sure that the light in the presence in the temple never goes out. That these these lampstands are always lit morning, day, evening, and night. And they were to use olive oil, specifically olive oil, pressed to make the lamps make light. Exodus chapter 25, look at verse 32. The lamps, the lampstand is there to give light in the tabernacle in the temple of God, and the lampstand is to be like a tree. It's actually designed to look like olive branches and olive tree blossoms. Look at Exodus chapter 25, verse 32 to 36. Listen to the description that Moses has given. Now, it's going to say six. It's always talking about three on one side, three on the other side, and one in the middle, so it's seven. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches. Now, notice we're not, we're not talking about candle arms. We're talking about branches. Branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with the, with the calyx, which is like the, the cup of the flower. The calyx and flower on one branch and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand, and on the lampstand itself there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers and calyx of one piece and under it each of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes, that's the cups, the flowers, and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it a single piece of hammered work of gold. Don't put this together. Don't weld this in your backyard one piece together. Now why? Why? Why all of trees? Why these branches? Why these calyxes and flowers? Listen, I just want to say it real quickly to save us some time here today. The whole tabernacle and the temple, both the temporary tabernacle and the permanent temple, were designed in the motive of a garden. There's garden everywhere in the tabernacle. Garden images everywhere in the temple. And I think what we begin to see is not just a garden, but the garden. In this garden, in the temple, which are sewn into the curtains, there are those angelic creatures, the seraphim, that were outside of the Garden of Eden. This is not just a garden. This is a picture of the garden. The garden, which is the foundation of all creation, the Garden of Eden, where God placed Adam and Eve to tend and to keep the history of the lampstands has a big time stamp in Exodus, but it goes all the way back to the garden. It's remembering the garden of Eden. Now, I told you it was a, a long story. I mean, it's a long story. It goes all the way back to the beginning. And we can watch and see olive trees all through the Bible, like in Genesis chapter 8. Noah has been on the ark 
And he's sending out a dove to check and see if there is dry land. And what does the dove bring back but an olive leaf? An olive leaf. And where does Jesus go before Jesus goes to the cross? Before Jesus goes to die on the cross, there's a moment where Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. In Matthew chapter 26, what does the word Gethsemane mean? Where, what garden did Jesus go into? The word Gethsemane means oil press. Jesus went into the place in the Garden of Olives where they pressed the olives to make oil. That's where he went to pray before he died on the cross for our sins. He went to that place where they pressed the oil that the temple would use in the lampstands so that there would be light in the temple morning, day, night, every single day without stop. And Luke tells us that when Jesus went into that olive press, he was praying so fervently while his disciples sweat, slept that his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. But watch, when John sees, what does John see? In Revelation, John looks and he sees Jesus among seven lampstands. And, and what are those lampstands? Jesus tells us explicitly, chapter 1, verse 20. Go back to Revelation, chapter 1, verse 20. Jesus explains these lampstands. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw, we're really going to be giving attention to the stars in weeks to come. The seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the seven angels, are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, the lampstands that you're seeing, are the seven churches. So where is Jesus? Jesus is among the churches, like a priest before the lampstands in the tabernacle and the temple, like a gardener in the Garden of Eden even. The church is the lampstands in this passage. Jesus is envisioned here as a high priest attending or tending the lampstands. Just as the priests in the Old Testament were charged with keeping that oil burning day and night in those lampstands before God, so Jesus is seen here ministering to the churches What is Jesus doing? Jesus is about to speak seven letters to the seven churches. What are those letters doing? Those letters are like Jesus tending the worship in the garden of the churches, caring for it, pruning it, cutting things off in order that the garden might flourish in worship. What's the point of every single letter The typical format of every one of the seven letters to the churches, and we could say to the church, this is for all of us to know and hear, the typical format for each letter is that this thing you are doing well, this thing you are not doing well. Just like a gardener talks to his flowers. Oh, this is beautiful, but we got to cut this off. Look what John says Chapter 1, verse 13. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now, when I said lampstands are a long story, so are the phrases son of man a long story. So are the phrases the golden sash. There's a long story behind those words. They're also tokens of remembrance. Theological heirlooms, if you will, which have so much significance all through the redemptive plan of God, the Old Testament. In short, what is the reference to the long robe and the golden sash? Those are parts of the priestly garments 
Those are what the priests are to wear. They came from the same passages around Exodus that we looked at in chapter 25 and referenced in chapter 27. Same area that the lampstands came from. Moses was told what kind of robes and sashes the priests were supposed to wear to represent their authority, their purity, and their role as mediators in the temple. They, too, are part of the priestly role in the temple. Jesus builds on the picture. This builds on the picture of Jesus being in a priestly role among the lampstands of the seven churches. The church. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you know, Christian, your place in the world in the universe. Do you know your importance in the universe as a Christian? And John told us that he's writing from the island of Patmos, exiled or imprisoned on the account of God and the testimony of Jesus. But when he looks up and it is finally explained, where does John see the churches in relation to Jesus, the high priest? Jesus is walking among the churches like a priest tending the worship to God among the churches. He's caring for the worship to God in the lampstands, in the churches like a priest. Friends, Jesus is tending to you, Christians, like a priest in the temple to continue worship in your life forever Day and night. It's Jesus' ministry to the church. You may see your position in the world, Christian, because of being a Christian, as small. You may think you serve but a little purpose to a few people in the world, and that is probably true. You may think, Christians, that you are few in number. You may suffer all kinds of abuse and persecution on account of the name of Jesus. But blessed are you, for you are not forgotten by Christ. You are as the lampstands of worship before God. You are right there before the holy of holies, and by our lives we are to be, Jesus is intending for us to be burning day and night, worship to God forever. You may be like John, cast away on some island, but in Christ you are the golden olive tree worshiping lampstands in the temple. And what is really worship to God? It's not candles and sacrifices and bricks, per se. It's people. It's people. The the tabernacle and the temple were always temporary pictures. There were always images showing us what was true in heaven forever. You don't have to turn there, but Ephesians 2, 18 through 22 says it like this. Paul writing about the gospel and what it does in God's people. For through him we both have access, Jews and Gentiles, everyone now, the whole church. All nations have access in one spirit. That word access even is a a temple phrase, access to God in the temple. So then you are no longer aliens and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. If you're in Christ, if you're believing in Jesus. You're built on the foundation, built like a building, a structure, a a temple, we'll see. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, all the people, the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple to the Lord in whom you also, if you are a Christian and believing in Jesus, no matter where you are from, no matter what skin color, no matter your gender, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We, Christians, 
are being built into a dwelling place. That's temple talk for God. Friends, that's our purpose. That's the purpose of Millwood Baptist Church. The enjoyment of worshiping God and glorifying God in His presence forever. If you're a Christian, you, we, are the burning, worshiping lampstands to God. We're part of the temple. We are the place of worship now, in a sense. And who is there to minister to me? Who is there to minister to you? Who is there tending and keeping the oil burning, keeping the lamps of worship lit and pure for worship to God? Jesus himself. Friends, just as the identity of the lampstands is a story upon story in the Bible, John's vision of Jesus himself sweeps through the Bible, showing us that Jesus is the glorious Son of God and even God himself, so that we might live in reverence and fear while living in joy and gratitude for Jesus Christ. Look at what John sees and how he describes Jesus. The aspects of Jesus in this passage are largely taken from the book of Daniel. But the thing about Daniel is Daniel is borrowing too. He uses phrases that help us look backward and forward in Scripture. Maybe you'd turn there with me, Daniel chapter 10, verse 4 to 6. Daniel sees almost all of these pictures of Jesus, this vision of Jesus, together at the same time. So Daniel chapter 10, verse 4 through 6, on the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing, this is Daniel on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words were like the sound of a multitude. I mean, that's almost exactly verbatim what John said when he looked and saw Jesus Christ. What we're going to do for the rest of our time this morning is just walk through this vision of Jesus Christ and celebrate and enjoy and revere Jesus Christ. And I want you to know I'm not in a hurry. This is something we should enjoy setting in. I saw this week that in the year 2000, Microsoft did a study, or maybe they released it later, but the study showed that in the year 2000, the average attention span in America is, was at the time I think 12 seconds, maybe 15 seconds. And then they saw many years later in 2010 or 2015 or so, it actually went down to eight. The average attention span is eight seconds. You know what the attention of a goldfish is? Nine seconds. That's embarrassing, guys. I don't think we're trained to stare long and hard at a painting anymore or a long book much less a vision of Jesus but that's what we're going to do this morning that's what John does he sees it he's told to write it down for us so that we could enjoy it look at Jesus' hair Revelation chapter 1 verse 14 the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. Now what's interesting is this matches Daniel's vision of God himself, the ancient of days in Daniel chapter 7. In that passage, Daniel is quite specifically speaking about God, not a man. To say that Jesus has hair like God is to say what? That he is like God. That he is God. That he has 
that nature too. Whatever white hair means for God in Daniel 7, it now means for Jesus too. What does white hair mean? Well, it might mean many things to a lot of different people. But it means wisdom. It means knowledge. To describe Jesus' hair as the whitest of white, white snow even, is to say that his knowledge is perfect. He knows perfectly. Jesus' ministry to us, the church, as the lampstands, is all-knowing. It's an all-knowing, perfectly wise ministry. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 29 says, The glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. Are there any amens? Amen. The splendor of an old man is gray hair. You, you may have some muscles when you're a teenager, but not wisdom yet. <laughs> this comes with time. Oh, what wisdom there is in the ancient of days. Now, of course, Jesus doesn't age. He's resurrected. He lives forever. But the hair means that in Jesus, as Paul says, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2.3. As Jesus ministers to us, what Jesus says to us, anything that he puts in his letters to us, anything that comes out of his mouth, it's all the wisdom and it's the knowledge of God. Friends, is your worship toward God weak? Do you fear that maybe in your own heart the, the flame of a affection or the flower of praise, or the walk in obedience has grown dim? That the lamp of your worship to God has grown dim? Look to Jesus Christ where all the wisdom and all the knowledge of God is in one man, Jesus himself. Because Jesus is the wisdom and the knowledge of God incarnated. Where do I go? What do I do? How do I live my life? How do I make it through this life worshiping God? And Christ is all the wisdom and knowledge of God. Look at Jesus' eyes. Revelation chapter 114, the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. Friends, Jesus does not need the light of the lampstands to see. This is the priest who sees and discerns everything he sees with divine precision. Nothing in the garden is hidden from his penetrating gaze. When you come to worship God near the lampstand, in John 1, Revelation 1, as the lampstand, there are no secrets before God. There is nothing hidden before this priest's. Confess what you may confess. Hide what you may hide. Jesus' eyes see. Jesus does not spend, he does not need some other source of light to shine into your heart and mind. He sees all things perfectly. His own eyes are illuminating and piercing all at once. Look at how it works in Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, look at verse 18. This is the letter to the church in Thyatira. Giving away a couple things here maybe if you're tracking, but look at what it sees. It references that which we just said, flaming eyes. Chapter 2, verse 18. The church to Thyatira and the angel, or the letter to the church in Thyatira, the angel said of the church in Thyatira, write, the words of the Son of God who has, eight, who has eyes like a flame of fire. That's how the letter to them is introduced. And whose feet are like burnished bronze. Go down to verse 23. Long story short, part of the problem in Thyatira is that they are allowing and committing idolatry with Jezebel, which is another one of those long stories. But look at what it says in Revelation 2.23. I, this is Jesus speaking, I will strike her children, that is all those who are with Jezebel and following her ways, I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know. What will they know about the one with flaming eyes in particular? All the churches will know that I am he who searches Mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. It doesn't say that in the other letters. 
It says it here. No, you will know then that I am he who searches mind and heart. Why? Because my eyes are like a fire. They see through. Jesus is tending the lampstands, the church's worship, to keep worship going, and nothing, nothing is hidden from his sight. Friends, do you have a secret that you keep harboring and then no one knows that you love to protect, that you are coddling, that you are feeding, and it, it is to you like a monster that you think you can keep caged? Is there to you a sin that you think no one sees? Friends, this gardener sees everything in the garden. His eyes are like a flame. He sees everything. Look at Jesus' feet. Revelation chapter 1, verse 15. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. Very simply, Jesus has power to crush his enemies under his feet. This metal has been forged and hardened in the furnace. Nothing can break it. In comparison, it's kind of like, this is not my world, but I know I've done just enough to get this illustration to maybe pass. It's a little bit like vibranium in the Marvel world. That indestructible, precious metal which first crashed into Wakanda millenniums ago. When you strike vibranium in the Marvel world, this television movie series, what happens? It absorbs energy from those who would attack it, and it returns that very energy back, virtually indestructible. Well, that's just an illustration, but that's what John is talking like. Jesus does not need any shoes. He, he does not need steel-toed boots. His toes are steel. He is himself filled with power. Revelation 2.27 says that Jesus, again to the church in Thyatira, where Jesus' eyes were mentioned, so were his feet mentioned, and there he is going to exercise authority over those nations who follow Jezebel and oppose him, and he's going to crush them like someone steps on clay pots. No resistance possible. No one can overpower Jesus. No one can oppose him. He has died, and he lives forevermore. His feet are like bronze, burnished in the furnace. See Jesus' voice. See Jesus' voice in chapter 1, verse 15. His voice was like the roar of many waters. Jesus' voice is not only like someone you see, it's all-encompassing, like standing before the ocean and hearing the waves crash down both directions of the beach. It's, it's like that sound that fills the air. And this, too, is something about Jesus that is like God. This is how Ezekiel, the prophet, talks about God, specifically when God fills the temple in Ezekiel chapter 43 where he says, Behold, the glory of God of Israel was coming from the east, which, by the way, where is the gate of the garden? It's on the east. Genesis chapter 3. The glory of God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. When Jesus speaks, it is an all-encompassing voice, so Great is God's voice that when people heard God's voice at Mount Sinai, when they were receiving those instructions, the commandments and the law and about the temple, and all they saw was the thunder and the lightning, and they told Moses, Moses, you, you speak to us, and we'll listen, but, but do not let God speak to us, or we'll die. We know what it would mean for him to speak to us. God's voice is so uproarious and so vast that it is part of what made John fall down as dead. It's too much. Friends, are you taking God's voice lightly? Are you taking 
him lightly. Friends, considering that, consider today whether you are listening to the voice of men, the voices in your own head, or the voices of God. How can I know? Does it cause you to tremble? Does it make you want to fall down dead and say, this is the voice of God? I don't mean to make you assume if you go home and close your eyes real hard and be quiet long enough that you're going to hear a sound like this. But that when you hear God's word preached, read aloud, studied on your own, when you read any of God's word, you realize this is the word of God, not the word of man. And I should run my life and my hopes by this word. That's how you know I've come to hear the voice of the Lord. This is the voice that's tending the garden, that is speaking to the churches, getting their attention for the sake of worship. Look at Jesus' mouth. Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, continuing. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Just like that, Jesus is like 10 times cooler to every boy and girl in the room. Who is this guy? A sword coming out of his mouth. Friends, this is symbolic language for how powerful and how cutting Jesus' words are. Isaiah seems to have himself as a prophet, perhaps referring to himself, maybe to Christ, it's difficult to tell, but in Isaiah 49, verse 2, it speaks of God's word as a double-edged sword, cutting two ways. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says, the word of God is living and active, actually speaking about Joshua and David's words that Hebrews has just quoted, those words from the Old Testament, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. That's how deep this word cuts. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, friends, I think one of the reasons that so many people stay away from Jesus' words is that they cut. They pierce. They, they never miss what they intend to strike. Jesus' words cut every direction they're swung. Jesus' words are going to be his weapon in the last battle. We won't turn there in Revelation, but 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 talks about it like this. When the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and to bring to nothing the appearance of his coming. Jesus is going to be victorious finally by the sword of his mouth, and it is with this sword that he also speaks letters to the churches, to us, about worship, about our lives, that's what Jesus' word is there to do, to cut, to pierce. Look at Jesus' face. Revelation 1.16, continuing his face, was like the sun shining in full strength. Oh, there are so many memories of the Old Testament here. This is a quote from Daniel. Only Daniel says in Daniel chapter 10, verse 6, his face is like the appearance of lightning. You ever been close to lightning? With your eyes open? What does it mean? When the priests were in the temple, Exodus says the lampstands were there to give light on the space in front of it, in front of that space. But now... When John sees this picture of Jesus as the priest among the lampstands of the churches, the face of Jesus is shining. Light emanates 
from him. Jesus is the light. The face of Jesus shining is revelation symbolic language that the glory of God emanates from this man's face. And Paul talks about the glory of God in the face of Christ like this in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He says, for God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, the God who spoke light into being in Genesis 1, that God to Christians says, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light on Jesus' face, Paul says, is shining into our hearts. Not only our face and our eyes like the sun outside, but shining into our hearts, to our, to our souls. And what is the light? The light is the knowledge of the glory of God. The light shines in, now I see the glory of God. Now I see him as wonderful, majestic, and all-powerful and incredible. I know God's glory in my heart now because of the face of Christ. How do you see the glory of God? The face of Jesus himself. To look upon Jesus' face is to see the full, brilliant glory of God. In Exodus chapter 34, you might remember that Moses' face shone when he met God in the tent, and the people were afraid. When Moses went in and spoke with God, he came back out, his face was glowing, and they freaked out, started putting blankets over him and said, this dude cannot just walk around. But when Moses did that, it was like the glory of the moon. He was there, and he received glory, and that glory was bouncing off of him like that, but not Jesus. You ever go outside? If you've been in Texas for five minutes, you've had this experience. Or maybe you go to the office in the morning when it's dark, and then you come back out at lunch or something, and you come out for the first time for the day, and the sun is in the middle of the sky, and there's not a cloud in the sky and the sun is shining in its full strength, and you walk out and you, like, you start covering, and you're putting, your, you're putting your glasses on, you're putting your hands over because you can barely stand it. This is what it says of Jesus Christ, like the sun shining in full strength. The sun itself, not some moon or planetary reflection, John sees that coming from Jesus' face. As Hebrew says, Jesus is the radiance. What a wonderful phrase. He's the radiance, the emanating of the glory of God himself. It's like Jesus told his disciples, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. It's too much. I mean, this is all too much. This is the moment John says, I fell at his feet, though dead. It's just too much. It's too wonderful. It's so glorious. The hair, the eyes, the feet, his mouth, his voice, his face. It's so wonderful. This is the man Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who walks among the lampstands, the church, as we'll see in the letters to come, in order to prune, in order to cut, so that what? So that the lampstands stay lit, so that the worship continues. This is not some gardener that you hire to come do your yard. This is the man who knows all things. This is the man with eyes like a flame of fire who sees everything. This is the man whose feet are like burnished bronze who conquers everything. This is the man with the white hair who 
has all the wisdom of God. What do we do with this vision? How does it apply to us directly? This is my summary sentence for our application today. Jesus is a faithful priest among the church. He tends the worship to God so we should repent of our sin today. Jesus is a faithful priest among the churches tending worship to God in the lampstand, in the church, so repent of sin today. What Jesus desires to tend will one way or another be tended. What Jesus desires to cut and prune will be cut and pruned. No one can hide from his eyes. No one can survive his crush. No one can thwart or oppose his counsel and his wisdom. There will be no lying, no faking religious activity before Jesus. Jesus will cleanse the temple of all false worship forever. He is the faithful high priest to God through his ministry in the midst of the church. This can be a little preview of where we are going in weeks to come, but look with me at Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. Everything that Jesus is is the basis for how he prunes and tends worship in the church. Every letter to the church begins with a correlating aspect of Jesus from John, from what John just described. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, the first letter to the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the stars, the seven stars in his right hand, and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, we've spent time today describing that's kind of like a priest among the lampstands in Exodus 25, which is really a picture of the garden. We went all the way back to the garden. Now, look what it says, Revelation 2, 5 through 7. Jesus calls the church in Ephesus to repent and listen for some familiar language. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. In other words, you were walking with me, then you quit walking with me. Go back to that. That's him tending. That's his correction. That's his, that's his tending reproof of the church to bring them back to worship. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What does he say? Here's the promise to Ephesus. It's different to every church. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And that's the garden. That's the garden. The garden. The tree of life. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. Look at the letter to Smyrna. We, we see all of these images of Christ that we've just discussed. They're the basis for his tending worship in the church. Chapter 2, verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? The words of the first and the last who has died and come to life. That's what Jesus says after John sees him. Number 3, to per Pergamum, chapter 2, verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? The words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. Number four, to Thyatira, chapter two, verse 18. The angel of the church to Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. And what is the first thing the one with flaming eyes says to the church in Thyatira? The one who sees and knows all things? In fact, where's the very first thing that Jesus says to every church in each of the letters? It's two of the most 
piercing, double-edged sword, cutting both ways words, Jesus could say his first words to every church are, I know. I know. The first words to every church from the gardener with the flaming eyes, the priest among the lampstands, the churches, is I know. He already knows. And it keeps going through every church. The vision, the glory of Jesus is the basis on which Jesus purifies the worship of the church. Jesus is a faithful high priest to God, and he is in the midst of the church. One of the great problems with the Old Testament, with the Old Testament people of God is their priests were often wicked. Not Jesus. Jesus is a faithful high priest, and he will ensure that God is worshipped in truth and in purity and in faithfulness, and he will tend the garden of worship in the church to that end so that the church is lit like oil day and night, worshiping God forever. Friends, if you feel at odds with God, consider that what you need to do is not merely a spiritual pick-me-up. You don't just need a shot of spiritual caffeine by turning on the radio or going to read a favorite book and getting some actual caffeine, but to repent, to turn from sin, Remember, it will be a Christian who's believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who knows him, but he would say to you, I know. I know what is in your heart. I know what is in your mind. I know what is in your life. And Jesus' ministry through his words to the letters is to cut that away. Help us cut that away. Remember that you have fallen, Jesus said to the church in Ephesus, and repent. If there is sin among us, we need to repent for the sake of the worship of God. To close, three things to do. One, ask for help. Maybe today you would tell someone else, I'm living in sin, and I know it, and I want to quit just trying to turn Caleb on to get it to go away. I want to deal with it in a gospel-centered, biblical manner. Ask for help. Go to your pastor. Go to your elder. Go to another trusted Christian and say, I need to confess this sin and I need to pray about it. Would you help me do that? Maybe we meet for just a few weeks just about that thing and read God's word and pray and try to repent. Maybe you need to talk to someone else for the sake of the worship of God in the church. Maybe there's someone else that you see that is stuck in sin My friends, we see through the Bible, it's a loving thing to care about someone else stuck in sin and to help them get out of that sin. It's not judgmental, it's it's helpful, right? Oh, who are you judging me while I'm stuck in sin? No, I'm trying to help you out of it. Jesus is concerned in your friends and in your fellow church members and Christians not so much about you being offended by their sin, but that their sin taints God's worship as a lampstand. Friends, let that be our great concern in one another. Oh, this sin has hurt me. Oh, this sin has burdened me. Oh, they sinned against me. Who do they think they are? Do they not know who I am? Oh, friends, we need to remember who Jesus is. Remember that we as a church, we as the lampstands are here to worship God. And what most concerns me about sin in someone else's life is not me, but what Jesus cares most about which is worship of God with our own lives. Maybe we're to go to each other and say, our worship to God matters and Jesus is tending the worship in the church to God. So that, brother and sister, that's not worship. Let's worship together by repenting and praying. What do you say? And finally, trust that Jesus cares about the worship of the church more than you. Friends, this is what allows us to stay in the church and last. I know that my experience, and I know it's your experience, the experience of every Christian who's gone to church for a little while, you start getting close to people and and sin happens. 
And we all get distraught and, man, well, maybe this isn't a real church. All these sinners up in here. Well, friends, Jesus is more concerned about the worship of the church than you could ever imagine. He's the one tending. That does not absolve us. It's our responsibility to care for each other's maturity, to care for each other's worship. But we do not carry the purity of the whole church's worship on our shoulders. The one with the bronze feet and the flaming eyes will tend worship just fine. Friends, this is the great joy and hope of being a Christian Serving together as a lampstand in the temple of God, being together in the very presence of God, and worshiping God with no reservation, having been cleansed of all sin, having repented of all sin, so that we can be in the midst of Jesus and have no fear of the flame of his eyes, which sees all things, have no fear, have no frightened no frightened spirit about ourselves because of Jesus' feet which could crush us because we are walking with him in purity. Do not be afraid of God's all-knowing wisdom because we live so foolishly. That pleasure of worshiping God with no shame is where Jesus is getting us. And he's getting us first there not by our own works but by his own blood. Jesus gets us to freedom from sin and forgiveness from sin, not in that we do really good and get away from our sin, but that first Jesus' blood was shed for our sin as sacrifice and given in the temple. At the cross, when Jesus was slain as a lamb, his blood was shed for the sin of all mankind, so that the place just beyond the lampstands in the temple both in history in Israel and forever in heaven, Jesus' blood is applied beyond the lampstands in God's presence for our sin. So the worship of God with no shame is not because we're so repentant and we're so good at not sinning. It's because Jesus' blood has gone beyond the lampstands to God's very presence and forgiven our sins sins in the holy of holies. The blood of Jesus cancels sin so that we can worship God in freedom from fear of his judgment. That's how you become a Christian. Not by saying, oh, I'll I'll live a much better life today. Oh, I see God's tending the garden. Let me go ahead and prune myself so that God will look at me and say, wow, what what a nice olive tree. What a nice flower. They're really doing a good job living their lives. No. That has to do with our worship. The way that we become a lampstand, the way that we become part of the church is by believing that Jesus Christ's blood was shed to forgive our own sin. And then as a Christian, we walk forward in this life and throughout all eternity before Jesus in the presence of him to the worship of God. Today, Jesus' eyes are a flaming gaze fixed on the worship of the church. Oh, friends, Jesus is not so much concerned about us saving us only to save us for the sake of saving us. Jesus' greatest object of his affection was always God himself. It was always the worship of God himself. And he saved and he ransomed the church for the sake of worshiping God with him. God's glory and God's worship The lit lampstands and the presence of God in his presence forever is why Jesus died to save us. I'll close with this as he says it in Ephesians 1, chapter chapter 1, verse 3 through 6. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him, with him, in front of him, like lampstands. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. His blood shed for us according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. My friends, believe in Jesus Christ, the great high priest who laid down his life on the cross for our sin that we might become the church, that we might become the lampstand which is to glorify God with our lives.
And might we listen to the voice of the one with flaming eyes and repent so that our worship is pleasing to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. This is your word, and as so much of as I've preached, we pray that these words would only be to understand clearly, hear clearly, have impressed upon our heart and mind your words. And help us to repent in all the things we need to repent of. Maybe we need to repent to someone, to you in prayer. Help us by your spirit to do that out of concern for your name and for your glory. Help us keep in our eyes fixed a vision of Jesus Christ this week and his ministry to us that we might in fear and great joy of our salvation live worship to you, God, today and this week. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.